This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Nell Freudenberger, author of the short story collection Lucky Girls and the novels The Dissident, The Newlyweds, and Lost and Wanted. In Lost and Wanted, Freudenberger explores the friendship between two women, Charlie and Helen, who meet at Harvard and experience a bond that influences the rest of their lives. When Lost and Wanted opens, Charlie has just died and Helen is receiving mysterious messages on her phone from her now-deceased friend. Charlie's death instigates Helen, a renowned physicist, to look back on her friendship both through memories and via the presence of Charlie's husband and daughter, who have come from California to Boston, where Helen lives, for the funeral, and then to live near Charlie's parents. Lost and Wanted explores the boundaries of friendship as well as asks the reader to consider the boundaries of time and space in our emotional lives. We began the discussion with Freudenberger sharing that Lost and Wanted began with the death of one of her friends. It's really started with losing a friend, um, not in the permanent way that, that Charlie's lost in the book, but um, having a friend who I wasn't in touch with anymore, not really because of any falling out, but just because we lived on opposite sides of the country and uh, she was difficult to keep in touch with. And so, and I was thinking, you know, I'm in the middle of my life. And, um, in my previous books, there had always been some sort of romance or lost, you know, I think loss is, is the engine for most fiction. And there had been some kind of lost romantic love in all the books or, um, in the last book, it was about a couple who met online from, you know, different parts of the world and, and then came together and got married and had to figure out how to live together. And when I started this book, I thought, you know, I'm not really thinking about romantic love right now, which is, you know, not to say I don't have a loving marriage. But what I was thinking about was a friend who I had lost. And that was the beginning of this book. How did that morph into your main characters? And let's talk a little bit about them. So your main characters are Charlie, who is the black character who was a writer who lived in Hollywood, and she is the one that died. And then Helen is it's all told in her point of view, and she's a physicist, and she's white with red hair, and they met at Harvard and as undergrads. So how did that, you know, idea of losing a friend morph into these two people? Sort of in a similar way to the first short story that I published, which was also about someone who had died. Um, the story is, uh, it's about Helen and Charlie, but it's also about Helen and Charlie's family and who are living, about Helen and Charlie's parents and about Helen and Charlie's husband, Terrence, and their daughter. Their daughter. And I, I guess I was interested in the way that um, somebody, you know, somebody dies and, and they change the relationships of all the people around them. Really, I wrote a whole different novel that was really only loosely um, connected to what is here now, and I threw it away and started again. So the book took a long time, and it uh, it went through two really distinct versions. I wish that weren't the case. <laughs> I wish I'd just written this one, you know, quickly, but sometimes it goes that way. What did you know was wrong with what you had before, and did um, that help you be really pointed when you start over? Yeah, it was something really specific. I um, I got started and I was thinking about this 
friend I had lost. And I was also thinking about a friend I knew in college who was an astrophysicist. And I was interested in him because he also wrote fiction. It seemed like an unusual combination. Um, he, I was thinking, I'm thinking of that, that novel, a terrific novel by Keith Gessen called All the Sad Literary Young Men. And this guy was just, you know, there were a lot of sad literary young men at Harvard and they were all sort of the same. And <laughs> this guy was totally different. He was a he was an astrophysicist primarily, and he was not sad, and he was just passionate about writing fiction as well. And I thought he was an interesting character, and I hadn't known him that well in college, which is always a good thing when you're making characters because um, you you know you kind of have the outside of someone, and then you can figure out who the person is on your own. And so I was writing about him, and I and I and then there was a female character, and she was a writer. And I think the problem was that I. Um, I was bored, you know, writing about uh, a writer is just, you know, I know what it's like to be a writer. I know what the problems are. I know what the blessings are. And um, it just, it didn't have any um, narrative drive. And when I got to the end of the book, it was just, the book was dead. You know, it just was static. It wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. There might've been some nice pieces, but it wasn't holding together. And I thought, what if I rewrote the book so that the narrator was the physicist if it was, and she was, you know, the narrator I knew was going to be female. I knew it was a first, it was a book that was going to be in the first person. And I thought I have to make her a physicist. And that was so scary because I don't have the scientific background that I thought I needed that I knew I had to do it. And when something is terrifying, you kind of know that you've found your idea. So Helen, it went to Harvard, was best friends with Charlie, who we learned in the beginning of the book has died. And Helen is a very motivated physicist. She, interestingly, you know, she's very married to her work, but interestingly, she also decided that she wanted to be a mother and she didn't have a partner, so she used a sperm baby to have a son. She has this interesting combo. She has this nurturing side because she's a mother, and she's so in tune with her physics, but she also has a line in there where she says she's slow to notice her own feelings. I got to know a bunch of physicists while I was writing the book because, you know, you can do as much reading as you want, but you're never going to get the um, what you get from talking to actual people. And that doesn't matter, you know, if you're writing a story about Chinese experimental artists, as I did in my second book, or, um, you know, about people who fall in love online or about physics. You have to to talk to the real people. And I found that they were not the way that physicists are in movies. They weren't, you know, on the autistic spectrum. They weren't uh, unemotional. Um, and and I had started to think about what it would be like for a scientist to lose somebody, what grief would be like for a scientist. And I think at the beginning, I had the kind of stereotypical idea that, uh, you know, a scientist would approach grief in a scientific, purely rational way. And I think I came to figure out in the writing of the book that grief would feel similar for a scientist, you know, if grief would feel the same for a scientist as the way that it feels for, for you or me. And, um, it was fun to play with Helen's, uh, you know, her firmly held scientific faith as some kind of unusual events start to happen around Charlie's death. There are things that seem to be supernatural and Helen dismisses them out of hand, but then she, it's kind of her job in the book to explain away these otherworldly events. You know, one of those things that happened that is inexplicable to Helen, who has a very scientific mind, is that she gets a text from Charlie and then she finds out 
after she gets the text that she had actually already died. So she's having these mysterious messages from beyond enter her life on the phone and she can't really figure it out. I, I did lose a friend while I was writing the book, kind of in the middle. Um, a, a friend died and it was totally unexpected and it was just, you know, awful. And the book is different than it would be uh, if that hadn't happened. And I wish more than anything, I would throw away the book in a second to, to go back and have that event not, not happen, of course. But after it happened, um, I guess the... Uh, it was striking to me the dig because I haven't lost somebody. I've lost my grandparents, but I, I haven't lost somebody my own age before. And the amount of digital information that we leave behind now, even I mean, I'm sure we've all experienced this. Even just the the text message history that you have with somebody that's still there, or I imagine on in Facebook comes into this book a little bit, although I'm not on Facebook, um, all the social media, all that stuff, it makes it even more difficult to believe that the person is gone. And that experience is something that everyone's familiar with. I was reading a little bit about uh, this book by Stephen Greenblatt about ghosts in the theater, specifically um, the ghost in Hamlet. And he has this very beautiful passage about how we've all um, heard the telephone ring and imagined that it was the the person we'd lost, or um, he says, you know, the elevator door opens and you imagine that it's your dead father coming upstairs, brushing snow from the shoulders of his coat. And it's just, it's such a specific and beautiful detail about the way that um, people we've lost are our presences um, around us, whether that's because of our memory or something um, more mysterious is kind of up to the person. So Charlie was black. And I'm wondering about the experience of being a white person writing about a black person. There is a very valid criticism about white writers writing about people of color. Um, and, you know, the especially like the dead that some people, people will say, you know, I, I get so excited when I see somebody who looks like me in a book and then I see, oh, they're dead, you know, and it's all about how the, the dead person influenced the, the white narrator. And I was really conscious about not wanting to write that story. And the, the story that Charlie's dead from the first page. And the story that I wrote is really about her, Helen's relationship with her husband, who's, uh, you know, biracial and, um, and also Charlie's parents and her daughter. And, um, you know, the, the, what has, what Charlie's loss has kind of done for all these people, the living characters, um, which doesn't, is not to say that there aren't memories of Charlie all the way through the book. Um, and she, Charlie, is, you know, like all the characters, a composite of different people, the people I know who are, you know, they're, the people who inspired Charlie are all alive happily and, you know, dear friends of mine. I guess, I mean, I, I think the other thing I, I would say about that is that uh, Claudia Rankin has a, has a great, has something that she said in a lecture that actually a friend went to and then sent me the notes for where she says that she wishes white novelists would help chip away at the white is normal problem. She talks about, you know, writers saying, well, you know, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to write about black characters. White writers saying, I don't want to write about black characters because I'm afraid I might get it, it wrong. And um, I guess I felt like if I get it wrong, you know, I get it wrong and then somebody's going to tell me and I'm going to learn something. But I would rather do that than um, artificially make the world that I live in. I mean, I live in Brooklyn. I um, grew up in Los Angeles. I've always lived in big uh, American cities. And 
if I write only about white people, it is, it's not going to represent, you know, the experience that I've had. I hope that, that I've mostly gotten it right in this book, but I, I also welcome criticism. I think it would be, if you're writing honestly about America, it's impossible that race doesn't come into it. I don't think most writers, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how you identify. I don't think most writers set about set, sit down to write a novel and say, I'm going to write a novel about race. Um, but you can't really write honestly about America without writing about race because, it, you know, it's from, you know, it's the beginning of our country's story. One of the big influences for them in college and one of the things that changed the trajectory of Charlie's life was that in college, she was really motivated with English, getting all everything in order so she could get a very prestigious fellowship. But her English professor was sexually harassing her and intimidated her to the point where she didn't pursue that life. And she knew and Helen knew. I guess I sort of had an idea that the, that sexual harassment was more prevalent in the humanities than it was in the scientists. And the scientists I talked to when I was working on this book just laughed me out of the room. Um, it's, it's, you know, a, I should have known, you know, it's, it's, it's all, it's an equally terrible problem in math and science and, and maybe made more um, aggravated by the, the, the um, discrepancy, you know, in terms of the numbers of, of people who go on to graduate study in, in physics in particular, you know, it's an incredibly um, stacked deck for a woman because there are so few of them and so few mentors to guide them. So I think I wrote about the professor who, um, you know, intimidates and harasses Charlie because that's the world I was more familiar with as an English major in college. I didn't, you know, I didn't know the, the, uh, what it was like for a science student as well as I did, but you know, this experience is so common and it's just happened to so many people, um, that I think, you know, most women can relate to it. I imagine it wasn't something I set out to write about at the beginning of the story, but, um, the character who's called Pope, he's a, He's a, uh, an English professor at Harvard is, is you know, fam familiar to everyone. The way that you write about it, it's not just one or two things that happen in college. It's not one or two interactions of intimidation. It's the ripples it leaves impact your entire life. That's exactly what I wanted to write about. You know, I wanted to write about the way that a woman's life might change because of the experience that she had with this powerful man early on in, in her career and how she might make different choices because of it. And I and, and it seemed necessary uh, in order to write about that, to, to write about an experience that was that was uh, ambiguous in some ways, you know, where it wasn't 100 percent clear that um Pope was doing something wrong from the beginning where the student, where Charlie was flattered by his, you know, by his attention to her work and where that, you know, attention actually did exist. You know, often it's often the story that we see is, is a story about, you know, a man who pretends interest in, in the a younger woman's work in order to get her into bed. And that, um, you know, I think that's simplistic. I think there often is, you know, promise and, and talent in the young woman and the the older man is uh you know is, is honest when he's interested in that and he's also you know interested in what can come of a, a relationship that's you know more intimate than is appropriate for in an academic setting 
and I think I think about it more, you know, as as the parent of a of a girl who's, you know, on, sort of at the beginning of of adolescence. I think, oh my God, how will I explain to her? How will I prepare her without scaring her? I mean, I think on some level, your book is also talking about the maybe seemingly random energies that surround us and how they might impact us for life. I mean, when you're talking about physics, there's this level where physics can intersect with thoughts about religion and God and our place in the world. And when you're thinking about, you know, when you have an action, the the reaction that follows. And so it's not just that that Charlie had this person that sexually harassed her and that had ripples through her life, but she also was sick. And I'm not really sure if that's kind of on some other energetic level related, but I wondered. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I read um, some great journalism about race and stress and chronic illnesses later on after it already created this character and lupus, the disease that Charlie has is more prevalent in African-American women than it is in white women. And nobody can quite explain why that is. And, um, the research that I was reading had to do with, uh, with, you know, complications around giving birth and the, the influence of race and stress on that. And so after, you know, after I'd been writing about Charlie for a long time, then to read about that was really interesting because it made me think about, you know, the constant barrage of, of stress that, um, you know, this is very obvious for anyone who's dealt with it, but less so for people outside of it, you know, that the incredible stress of not knowing where, um, you know, racism is going to come from at any moment. There's Emily Bernard has this wonderful new book called Black is the Body, and she writes an essay about um, being stabbed when she was a graduate student at Yale um, by, you know, a crazy person who came into a cafe where she was studying. And the incident was not race-based at all. She was one of seven people who were stabbed by this crazy person, and she was the only, everyone else was white. And, uh, and then she, you know, she tells the story and then she talks about being in the hospital and something that happens with a white doctor. And that's, you know, when she's absolutely vulnerable and, um, bleeding and lying on a a gurney, um, something that this man does is, you know, clearly has to do with race and is so, and part of what is so terrifying and upsetting about it is that it's so unexpected. And this is the person who's charged with caring for her. And I think that that, uh, that's the thing, right? That um, that racism is everywhere, and you it doesn't always come from the place where you expect it to come from. I think these women in both of their workplaces, you know, Helen in hers, and Charlie in hers, they're they're really excelling, and they are kind of facing those challenges. We see more of it in Helen's world of you know, balancing having a child and being really ambitious and being really passionate, so passionate about your work that we see the the upside. We see Helen excelling and working with people who are close or, or getting a Nobel Prize in the future and, and striving towards that, like really high-level stuff, and also balancing the, the small failures that maybe 
she has in her personal life, like her inability to find love, but that um, that work is the most important thing for her life. And she's doing really important work. That was something that I set out with. I thought, you know, I've written love stories before, and um, this book is a love story. I mean, it's a love love between two, you know, friends. Uh, there's romantic love that comes into the book, but it's not. It's certainly not as important as the primary relationship between Helen and Charlie, or between Helen and her her son Jack. Um, and I was thinking about this. Um, part of middle March where George Eliot says that uh, she says that we are not afraid of telling over and over again, how a man comes to fall in love with a woman and be wedded to her or else be fatally parted from her. But we, and then now obviously I'm paraphrasing, um, but we, but we don't often tell the way that a man, of course she says a man because of the time she's writing um, a man falls in love with his vacation, his vocation and practices it and then perhaps becomes disillusioned later on. And um, even though she's she's talking about Lydgate, her male character, of course, she's thinking about her own work because she was one of the most um, diligent and focused and passionate um, writers in history. And uh, and I, I really wanted to write about women and work. I wanted to write about um, the ways that their devotion to their work developed and changed over the course of their lives. And I, I didn't set out to write about children. I didn't mean to write about the challenges that children would pose to those vocations for Charlie, it's writing and for, for Helen, it's, it's physics. But, um, you know, of course that came into it. I mean, I didn't, I also, I often just think back, I don't know if this is true for you also on the way that I thought about work in college and just the fact that I never, you know, I never considered how having children would, um, affect the day to day of, of my work. I mean, I didn't, I certainly didn't think that one day I would be um, doing a, a an interview and on Skype, and but that I would have to remember to call my mom the night before, you know, in a panic and say like I am going to have to do this interview and, and the kids are home on spring break and can you please please come over at eight thirty in the morning? You know, <laughs> um, it's just not uh, it just wasn't something that we thought about. I feel like we were presented with this sort of ideal world in college where. Um, you know, women and men would have, have, uh, the same sort of, you know, exactly. We would divide the labor exactly down the middle. And, um, and so, you know, in the same way that I didn't think about those challenges as a young person, I didn't, I didn't necessarily mean to bring child children and childcare into this book, but because it's so much a part of my daily life now, it, you know, came into it. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I always feel kind of guilty when I am asked this question because I feel like I want to say to the writer, you know, look, I don't claim to be able to do anything like what you can do, but <laughs> but you influence me. But I love your work and I go back to it again and again. So for me, one of them, one of those people is Grace Paley. And I thought I would just read half a page from her uh, perfect short story, the one called Wants. I saw my ex-husband in the street. I was sitting on the steps of the new library. Hello, my life, I said. We had once been married for 27 years, so I felt justified. He said, what? What life? No life of mine. I said, okay. I don't argue when there's real disagreement. I got up and went into the library to see how much I owed them. The librarian said $32 even, and you've owed it for 18 years. I didn't deny anything. 
because I don't understand how time passes. I have had those books. I have often thought of them. The library is only two blocks away. My ex-husband followed me to the book's return desk. He interrupted the librarian who had more to tell. In many ways, he said, as I look back, I attribute the dissolution of our marriage to the fact that you never invited the Bertrams to dinner. That's possible, I said. But really, if you remember, first my father was sick that Friday. Then the children were born. Then I had those Tuesday night meetings, and then the war began. Then we didn't seem to know them anymore. But you're right. I should have had them to dinner. Can you tell me more about why you chose that? Yeah, I mean, I think Grace Paley always uh, thought of herself as a poet primarily, and what she's famous for are her short stories. But I think that you can hear that in the deceptively simple rhythmic sentences that she writes. Um, I also, she's to me, she's so funny. I just, I love all that um, about the, you know, I love the way that she writes dialogue. I love the exchanges between her and her ex-husband in uh, in that story and the, the library book that is returned. And then the librarian checks, allows her to check it check it out again because she says it's more apropos than ever I mean it's just the book is the house of mirth and it's uh it's just it's one of my favorite stories I was lucky enough to meet her when I was um let's see I think it was 2007 I was pregnant with my first child and I went over to her house on 11th street her apartment on 11th street which was just the way that it you know appears in the stories and uh and she was you know my great hero so of course I was so nervous and I asked her, um, how did you, I was thinking about it a lot because of being about to have this baby. And I said, how did you balance it all? How did you balance the writing and the mothering? And plus, you know, you did all this inspiring political work. And she like, looked at me and she said, balance? I didn't balance a fucking thing. <laughs> she was like, so wise, right? Because the way that it works is sometimes the writing is the most important and you're blocking the door and telling the kids they have to amuse themselves. And other times it's all about the kids and you can't think about your work because you're so worried about something related to one of them. Um, sometimes it's something else entirely. So, uh, yeah, she's a writer who just means a huge amount to me. The way that she writes about feminism, the feminism of her time, um, she has this great thing where she says, as a former boy myself, in the sense that many little girls reading Tom Sawyer know that they've found their true boy selves. I had been sold pretty early on the idea that I might not be writing the important, serious stuff. As a grown-up woman, I had no choice. Everyday life, kitchen life, children life had been handed to me, my portion, the beginning of big luck, though I didn't know it. So that's from Two Ears and Three Lucks, which is her short, uh, short essay about about writing and how she found her subject. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard to write or changed a lot from the first draft. I guess you could read your whole first novel. <laughs> <laughs> right, that let's, let's be, all be thankful that that's not possible. Um, the, the last chapter is really the one that changed the most, but I was, I was gonna read the first one just because that is, uh, that's the way that the second draft got started. Um, in the first few months after Charlie died, I began hearing from her much more frequently. This was even more surprising than it might have been, since Charlie wasn't a good correspondent, even when she was alive. I should say right away that I don't believe in ghosts, although I've learned that 45% of Americans do, at least not in the sense of the glaucous beings who appear on staircases, in abandoned farmyards, 
or on the film or digital records of events that absolutely did not include, say, a brown dog in the lower left-hand corner or a man standing behind the altar in a black hood. Charlie died in Los Angeles on a Tuesday night in June. I was in Boston and I didn't know. We hadn't spoken for over a year. People talk about a cold wind or a pain in the chest, but I didn't feel anything like that. On Wednesday at about noon, my phone rang. Or rather, I happened to be looking through my bag for my wallet and I saw that the screen was illuminated, Charlie. I grabbed the phone and answered before I could think of any of the obvious things, such as why pick up right away, or it's been more than a year, or what are you to her anymore? Charlie? I heard a shuffling, something lightweight falling to the floor, empty boxes maybe. I said her name again and then I lost the call. I called her back but no one picked up. I felt foolish and unaccountably disappointed. I vowed that if she tried again, I wouldn't pick up. I would wait a few days before deciding whether I even wanted to call her back. And why did you choose that? I guess I chose it because it was the thing that uh, made me think that I could write this book that, you know, I didn't, that I had thrown away those, you know, however many 600 pages and, uh, and that, but that there was still a book here and it was kind of, um, it was kind of out of the blue. I mean, I didn't, I didn't plan. Um, I had planned that there was going to be this physicist character and she was going to tell the story. And at the point when I wrote that, that was sort of all I knew. And Charlie kind of came to me when I was, when I was writing that very beginning. And so it was, you know, it was the thing that made me hopeful, made me able to imagine spending another three years on the book and, and um, finally getting it to be how I wanted it. Where do you write? I have a desk in our house. Uh, it's really messy. I was thinking about it. Another, I was writing, answering another question about about that, and uh, and I was thinking about a writer who I knew who had like a empty, a beautiful empty table with a little cup full of sharpened pencils, and that was it. And I thought, God, that's really, that would be so beautiful and amazing. And my desk is just covered with with books and and forms and things for the kids and, and, uh, little post-its. I have a lot of post-its. Some of them are, you know, some of them are things that I want to remember or a poem or whatever. And other things are like my Apple ID that I can never remember, or like this kid's social security numbers, or there's one right now that says Easter with an exclamation point, because one of the kids said, I'm so looking forward to Easter. And I was like, Oh my God, Easter. Like I totally forgot that there was Easter. And when is it? You know, I like frantically looking at my calendar to make sure that we hadn't missed Easter, you know? (laughs) So it's just, uh, yeah, it's a mess. Um, and it's in a room that's kind of also our junk room. So there's uh, a lot of stuff that we don't know what to do with in here as well. But it can be kind of cozy. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I mean, I just go downstairs and the children are there. And, uh, you know, we don't have other child care. So my husband, my deal is sort of that I, um, you know, I, I work while they're in school and then I, I'm with them in the afternoon because he has a more full-time job and that's that's uh, a blessing for me because I have health insurance and you know we have a steady income so and, and you know I love being with the kids and and uh and I think it's you know that I think some the the housework and the cooking and the uh you know all the stuff that goes with it can be disruptive to work but I think the actual caring for the children and talking to them is helpful for writing because it reminds me partly because it reminds me how precious the time alone at my desk is and also uh, because it forces me to engage with you know really concrete um, problems 
as opposed to the the kind of abstract stuff you think about when you're when you're writing fiction. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I'm really lucky to have this great group of women in Brooklyn, and we meet once a month. Um, and the group was started by uh, by Julie Oranger and Julie Oranger and I and Monica Farrell um, got together, and we uh, we thought it would be terrific if uh, we could get together once a month and not exchange work because everybody um, is either teaching or has children, everybody's writing and um, everybody's really busy. And it's a, it's a triumph when we get 10 people in a room together, but it's been incredibly helpful. It's really supportive and, um, and it's uh, supportive, but also we also challenge each other and we go around the room and we talk about whatever, whatever thing is kind of troubling us at that moment. And it can be a craft problem. It can be, you know, oh my God, I just realized that I have been writing this novel in third person, but it should really be in first person. And has anyone ever um, made that kind of change? And what was it like? Or it can be something like, I think I need to switch agents. Does anyone have any ideas? And the the collective, you know, kind of experience in the room is, is terrific because you can, you can get all kinds of advice at once. And then we, uh, when we finish something and we want somebody to read it, I mean, usually I find somebody in the group who's at a similar, who's also a fiction writer because it's, it's poets and fiction writers and nonfiction writers, journalists. And so, you know, I find somebody who, uh, who also writes fiction and maybe has a manuscript that they're ready for a reader and then we can make an individual trade, but it doesn't mean that we all have to read everyone's work every time, because if we made that requirement, nobody would come. So those, that's who, I mean, and I have some other writer friends who are not in the group, mostly because they're men. And we decided this was really going to be a women's group. Um, and so uh, David Bezmosgus reads my stuff a lot also, but he's not allowed to be in the group. How have you dealt with rejection? I think I tend to sort of double down on rejection and just say to myself, okay, like I didn't hit it this time and I'm going to work harder. Uh, I think it's a kind of, it's sort of what I was doing when I decided to rewrite the book from scratch. I think it's a sort of stereotypically female strategy and it doesn't always work because no matter how much time you put in at your desk, you can't guarantee that you're going to make a piece of writing better. But just putting in the hours uh, makes me feel better. I think I have like a kind of accountant's mentality about writing. It's very much for me about the hours that I sit there as opposed to the number of words that I produce. As long as I'm at my desk, I kind of feel like that's what I can ask of myself as long as I'm focused. I mean, not at my desk, you know, getting distracted by email or, you know, reading or whatever. It's really sitting there and looking at the the page and thinking. And sometimes it's, you know, sometimes you have a great day and sometimes you have a terrible day, but you just got to kind of keep having the days. And what is your favorite word? Uh, I only know this from search and replace, but unfortunately my favorite word is particular. I use it. I overuse it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Nell Freudenberger, author of the novel Lost and Wanted. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.